This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversations. Leading American author Robert Kaplan wrote an article entitled A New Cold War Has Begun in the Foreign Policy Journal in January this year. He wrote that it is nothing less than a new Cold War. The constant interminable Chinese computer hacks of American warships, maintenance records, Pentagon personal records and so forth constitute war by other means. The Economist magazine wrote in May this year that there is a new kind of Cold War between China and the United States. They elaborated, fighting over trade is the half of it. The United States and China are contesting every domain, from semiconductors to submarines and from blockbuster films to lunar exploration. The two superpowers used to seek a win-win world. Director of Policy Planning, at the U.S. State Department, Dr. Kiran Skinner went one step further and said that this competition with China is different as an adversarial diet than in the 20th century with the Soviet Union in the sense that when we think about the Soviet Union and that competition, in a way it was a fight within the Western family. You could look at the Soviet Union, part West, part East, but it had some openings there that got us the Helsinki Final Act of 1975, which was a really important Western concept that opened the door to undermine the Soviet Union on human rights principles. That's not really possible with China. This is a fight with a really different civilization and a different ideology. And the United States hasn't had that before, nor has it had an economic competitor the way that we have. The Soviet Union was a country with nuclear weapons, a huge red army, but a backward economy. In China, we have an economic competitor, we have an ideological competitor, one that really does seek a kind of global reach that many of us didn't expect a couple of decades ago. And I think it's also really striking that it's the first time that we will have a great power competitor that is not Caucasian, unquote. Several people have talked about the resumption of a Russia-US Cold War as well. There are, however, others who think that all this is over-analysis, all this Cold War talk is over-analysis. The term is so loosely used today that people talk about Cold War metaphorically and otherwise in several settings around the world. So, is the world looking at a new Cold War or is that an exaggeration and over-analysis? Or are we merely looking at the onset of great power rivalry, which some would say is a staple of international politics? More so, would describing the current great power rivalry as a new Cold War create self-fulfilling prophecies, something we should strive to avoid? My guest today is Professor Peter Jones. Peter Jones is a professor of international affairs at the University of Ottawa. Before joining the University of Ottawa, he served as a senior analyst for the Security and Intelligence Secretariat of the Privy Council of Canada. 
He is presently leading several Track 2 initiatives in South Asia and Middle East and also is widely published on various issues on international politics. Welcome to the National Security Conversation, Peter Jones. Thank you for having me. Peter, the question is, is the current global political order marked by a new Cold War or several Cold Wars? What's your take on that? I think we use the term Cold War <clears throat> a bit too loosely. Mm -hmm. My sense, my belief, is that the Cold War was a very specific episode in world history. And it was characterized by two countries that were fundamentally incompatible on a very deep ideological level. To the extent that they could really imagine a, a global total war with each other because they were fighting over what, as former President uh, George Bush, the, the first, put it, uh, was the soul of mankind. He was once asked, what was the Cold War about? He said it was a struggle for the soul of mankind. By which he meant it was a struggle mm. over the basic definition over how society should be organized, over how individuals should relate to the state and each other. <coughs> and I don't think what we have now going on, although as serious as they are, these different uh, competitions, are marked by that kind of a, a level of ideological difference, such as we saw during the Cold War. And so I think if we, if we characterize them that way, and if we conceive of them that way, then there's a danger we're going to start going down the path that they did during the Cold War of imagining total wars against each other over, over ideological differences. And I don't think that exists today. But you just heard the Director of Policy Planning at the U.S. State Department saying that we have a, we have a competitor in a very, from a very different family. It is not in the Western family. China is a very different ballgame. And therefore, China, with China, we may actually have a civilizational conflict. Well, perhaps, although I don't buy that stuff. But perhaps. But that doesn't make it a Cold War. I mean, it's possible to have great power competition with different civilizations. It's happened throughout history. It still doesn't mean that America and China are destined to have the kind of a competition, the kind of a difference that can lead them to imagine the necessity to fight a global war against each other. You, Whereas yeah. in the Cold War, that was the case. You, you are a student of global politics, and um, 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 you saw how the Cold War, at least the, the, um, the, the last part of the Cold War, how that was fought out. How do you describe the, the major defining characteristics of the Cold War and how are they different from the various competitions that we are seeing today? Well, I think it's important to remember the Cold War began out of the ashes of World War II. Mm -hmm. And so those who were uh, present at the beginning of the Cold War had had the experience of fighting a total global war. And they could imagine the next war as being the same. They were also at the beginning of the nuclear era. And so they realized that the next war would have that dimension and could, in fact, result in the end of mankind. And they were also the products of an era which defined politics as a sort of ideological differences, the, the, the era of the isms, communism, liberalism, capitalism, um, where these great grand ideas fought one another for world supremacy and where they imagined that they, they needed to defeat and eliminate the other idea in order to survive and be, and be safe. Um, and as the Cold War went on, I think that mentality took root. And even though there were those who tried to sort of ameliorate the Cold War and, and damp it down, there were periods of detente and that sort of thing, it was still seen as this global ideological struggle for precedence of, of a particular ideology, a particular worldview, a particular way of organizing society. And I think that's absent in many cases from the rivalries we see between the U.S. and China. It's a serious rivalry, and it could lead to fighting. I'm not downplaying it. But it's not a rivalry between two ideological competitors. The Chinese, I call it market Leninism. They are, they are capitalist in many ways. Right. They are a one-state capitalist system. Right. There's no ideological divide there. They're, they're fighting with the U.S. or 
competing with the U.S. for dominance, but they're not competing with the U.S. over the basic concept of how society should be organized. How do you differentiate between what is happening in the current international uh, system and what happened during the Cold War years in terms of great power rivalry? Uh, you said there was, a, there was an ideological um, a sort of fight over, over, over what is right and what is wrong. Um, so do you, do you not see an ideological fight today in certain settings at least? Say, for instance, look at uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, look at India, Pakistan, or look at uh, Israel, Palestine. What do you see? How do, how do you sort of perceive these rivalries as today? There are rivalries. Um, the ones that you've mentioned and I, you know, we can talk about whether they're Cold Wars or not, but they tend to be more religious than ideological, but nevertheless, or have religious elements to them, but nevertheless, they are the kinds of, of, of um, differences over which it is at least imaginable that the two sides could fight a great major war of, of existence. Uh, certainly, the, the, uh, the Saudis and the Iranians talk in those terms. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there are calmer heads on all sides. But, but one can characterize those competitions that way in the sense that at the heart of them, whether it's the Sunni-Shia split or other splits in the, in the, in the, in the Jews and, and Arabs, there are these great uh, differences that can be fought over. But in terms of the major um, relationships between the United States and Russia, the United States and China, there aren't ideological dimensions. They're fighting over the things that great powers have fought over centuries. They're fighting differently. We're now in an era where there's artificial intelligence, where cyber war, I mean, these are going to be very different great power competitions and very dangerous ones. But they're not um, Cold War type differences such as we saw during the, the latter half of the 20th century. So the difference, basically, if I understood you correctly, you were saying that there was a difference in the understanding of the way of life uh, in the United States as opposed to the Soviet Union during the Cold War years. The, that, that way of life difference is not perhaps uh, uh, evident in, in today's context. Um, say between uh, the Russians today uh, versus the Americans, India versus Pakistan, or Arab, um, Arabs versus the Israelis. There's no way of life competition. It's basically a struggle for interest, as it were. Would you put it that way? It's not just the way of life. I think you've characterized it well, but <clears throat> it wasn't just that there was a struggle over a way of life. There was a belief that our way of life is so vastly superior, we must export it to the world. And we must, and we're in competition with them who believe that their way of life is the right way, and they're trying to export theirs to the world, and we must stop them. So it was, it was not just that the U.S. and the Soviet Union wanted to live their way of life within their own countries, which would have been fine. Mm -hmm. It was that they wished to export it, and they believed they had a divine mission mm -hmm. to export it and to, to, to foist it upon the rest of the world, mm -hmm. and that led them into competition with one another in a very profound ideological sense. And I think that the differences which exist now between Russia and China and America, <clears throat> they have very different ways of life, but they don't, they're not trying to export their ways of life well, perhaps the Americans are, but, but for the most part, they're not. It, that's right. not what the fight's about. The fight's about right. interests that's and the fight's about economic interests and other interests like that and influence. And that's the way great powers have been fighting for years. And it doesn't necessarily mean that a, a global conflagration is coming. What is the problem of, uh, or what's your objection to people defining these great power rivalries or fights as um, uh, new Cold Wars? Yeah. I understand, as academics, we understand the importance of uh, definitions. But tell us, why, 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 why do you think uh, you have an objection to that? I think it's a serious problem because it's sloppy thinking. It's transposing one paradigm to a totally different situation. 
And in and of itself, that's not so bad. It's just sloppy. But, but the problem is that the way we responded to the other side during the Cold War was with this massive arms buildup and with preparations for a massive conflict and with a sense that everybody in the world either was with us or against us and with a sense that if the other side gained influence in one place, it would lead to them gaining influence across the region, the famous domino theories mm -hmm. that the Americans spoke of and were the reason why they got into Vietnam. And therefore, it leads to this kind of thinking that the competition that the U.S. has with Russia or with China must necessarily be global, and it must necessarily be one we have to respond to with arms, and, and it must necessarily be one which could lead to uh, conflicts around the world, and it must necessarily be one which other players, other actors, smaller nations in the world have to choose sides, uh, or in, in the name of freedom, or communism, as the case may be. And those are dangerous paradigms, because I don't think they fit in the world we're in today. I think there are other ways to persuade people and other ways to interact with people. And so my main concern is not just the intellectual sloppiness of it. I mean, I don't, it, it, it annoys me as an academic, but I don't mind. It's that if we, if we go this way, we might start responding to the problems we see in the world through a Cold War lens, through a Cold War paradigm. And I think that's very dangerous. Self-fulfilling fulfilling prophecies. For Could example. well be, yeah. You know, much of this thinking is actually emerging from within the United States, uh, be it from within the academia or from the, um, the, the journalistic community. Why do you think it is originating from, the, from within the United States? Why are they saying what they are saying? Is, is, there, is there a larger objective behind it or is it just free thinking? Um, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, you know, there's a saying, generals prepare to fight the last war. Well, academics are preparing to fight the last war, too. I mean, uh, uh, you know, there's, we have a paradigm in our minds. We apply it, right? Right, right? And we have a literature that we apply. And most of the people who are in their 50s and 60s today in, in, in the academic world, they grew up in the Cold War. They were born in the 1960s or the 1950s. And it's, it's what they're steeped in. It's the way they see the world. And they're, they're, they're not breaking free of it. It's also, frankly, a bit sexy, you know, and people want to write things that will get published and they want to get noticed and they want to get invited on talk shows. And, and this, you know, you use the word Cold War, it has an instant recognition yeah, right. factor. Oh, let's have him on the show. Let's have him talk about the Cold War. The existential connotation. The existential fight we now have with Russia over Crimea. It's nonsense. There's no existential fight. There's a fight of interest in Crimea. There's a fight of interest in Ukraine. But it's not existential, and it doesn't necessarily have to lead to a global conflagration. If Russia had done to Ukraine, uh, done to another country in Europe, what it did to Ukraine during the Cold War, if it had moved on Finland the way it moved on Ukraine, that could have been a cause of a major war in Europe, which could have gone global. What's happened in Crimea is not going to be the cause of a major war. It's a cause of a, a conflict of interests. Okay, that's fine. But if we view it through a Cold War paradigm, then we could get ourselves in trouble. So some of this uh, uh, paradigm building is attention-seeking behavior in the, in, within the academy, <laughs> you would say. That's to put it in a rather juvenile way, but I suppose, <laughs> I suppose you could do it that way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, Peter, let's look at some facts and um, fears, as it were. The, the Trump administration's new national security strategy announced in December 2017 stated that uh, revisionist China and Russia were now posing a threat to the United States 
uh, security. Um, in fact, several new weapon systems that China is developing today, uh, for instance, the hypersonic weapons or the military uh, implications of the artificial intelligence, etc., are making the Americans very concerned. Uh, the, the, the Chinese are concerned, of course, that the Americans are uh, putting in a lot of money in uh, improving their nuclear forces, um, in creating a new generation of no low-yield uh, nuclear weapons for submarines, etc., etc., and and so you're seeing a certain rivalry that is building between the United States and China. And as far as the Russians are concerned, Trump is withdrawing from the Open Skies Agreement probably very soon. And uh, he has already withdrawn from the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Uh, the NATO is geographically pretty close to uh, uh, Russia, as it were, the Russian mainland. Russia feels encircled. Um, and, and, and there is absolutely no arms control conversation between Russia and the United States at this point of time. So you're looking at... Uh, the 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 uh, undoing of the old certainties as it were that we are so used to for a very long time um so people look at these facts and fears and they say hey hey there's something is happening there but how do you describe this if it is not new cold wars how do you describe this i think it's the updated version of the kind of great power rivalries we've seen throughout history yes. whether it's the british versus the french or whomever it might have been um, now, it, it, they're dangerous. These are not uh, 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 pleasant situations. I'm not trying to downplay them by saying that we shouldn't view them through a Cold War um, lens. But I'm saying we should try to analyze them in their own sake. Um, I think that the, the, the rivalries that exist between America and China and America and Russia and China and Russia to some extent, although it's less so now, but I think it will reemerge, um, are serious, but they are also ones that can be talked about. Um, um, in the Cold War, there was a constant conversation going on, uh, constant diplomacy, mm -hmm. and it was viewed as a very stable situation, at least in Europe and, and the Northern Hemisphere. In the Southern Hemisphere, the Cold War was brutal and bloody. You know, many millions lost their lives. And the, we tend to think in the West of the Cold War as having been you know, a dangerous time with nuclear weapons, but fundamentally safe and not many died, which is completely untrue if you live in the developing world. Um, but what's happening now, I think, you know, it... it it's a confused, confusing, dangerous situation. There are multiple rivalries that could, that could emerge into conflicts, um, but they're not Cold Wars in the sense that we, that we analyze the Cold War. And, and I think there, there needs to be an investment in um, diplomacy, which sadly the Trump administration is walking away from, to, to understand these conflicts and these competitions in their own right and to find the accommodations and the, the compromises that were found that have been found throughout history to avoid wars between great powers when it's been possible to do so. Peter, if you look at the um, um, kind of conversations that were happening during the Cold War years and a um, uh, lot of arms control agreements and treaties and conversations for years and years, for decades together, and this was happening at the height of the Cold War. So you had this very existential ideological rivalry that was, that was going on. At the same time, you had a lot of conversations happening among statesmen. Today, uh, you don't have a Cold War, but you have several rivalries, and they are, some of them are pretty existential in nature, and yet you do not have any conversations happening on arms control or disarmament or even confidence building for that matter. Mm -hmm. what, explains, what explains this? Uh, when you look at the contemporary international system, why is that we have absolutely no appetite uh, in any part of the world to get into meaningful dialogue and negotiations with the other side, um, despite the fact that we have a very raging rivalry that's happening? Well, during the Cold War, arms control discussions and, and 
there weren't that many agreements, but there were decades of discussions. And I would argue that the discussions were just as important as the agreements. They were the two sides talking to one another, trying to understand each other, educating one another about their concerns. And so that was seen as part of the currency of the Cold War. And because there was this perception of stability within a rivalry, that went forward. And, and, and you know, trade-offs among weapons and confidence-building measures became part of the currency of how the great powers interacted. It was seen as such. So during periods of tension in the Cold War, the two sides would, you know, walk away from Geneva very dramatically, and then they'd come back and start talking again. And that was sort of the dance that was going on. I think we have yet in these crises we have now to develop the dance. We don't know what the dance consists of. Uh, they're, they're still quite new. We're trying to figure them out. The Americans are trying to figure out a world in which they're no longer the sole great power. Um, um, other countries are trying to figure out their rise and what it means and what they want. And so I think some time needs to be invested in figuring out what is the dance? What is the, the ongoing conversation in, in uh, Europe, there was the Concert of Europe for many, after the Napoleonic Wars, which kept the peace for a century. And it was an elaborate dance that had rules. The European powers played by them for the most part. And they avoided a, a great war, even though there were rivals in many places around the world. <clears throat> we need to find that. And I don't know what it looks like yet, but I think if we keep sort of polluting our minds with this Cold War paradigm, we're not going to find the dance we need to be dancing because we're going to be trying to dance the old one and not succeeding. Peter, let me play the devil's advocate. Um, the fact that we had a Cold War till 1990, 1989 or so, uh, made people aware of the importance of negotiations and therefore they negotiated. They, they realized that it was important to talk to the other side so that there is no, there is no, there is no nuclear war and uh, you know, uh, the humankind would perish and all that. Today there is no such feeling of an urgency and therefore there are pr probably no negotiations. So, so the, the, the Cold War, the new Cold War theories, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps maybe using the Cold War analogy to nudge nations and leaders um, to a point where they take what is happening around them seriously and come to the negotiating table. Or would that be uh, overstating the point? I think or is that not useful at all? I think it's probably overstating the point. Um, I, because I think the negotiation that they're going to have to have is going to have to be fundamentally different from the Cold War one. Uh, it's going to be about things like climate change and the impact it's going to have on the world security. It's going to be about the emergence of artificial intelligence and cyber hacking. It's going to be about these kinds of things. And they're not amenable to the kind of set-piece, stylized, formalized negotiation that arms control and confidence building was during the Cold War. It's much more fluid and dynamic. It's much more about developing, I think, a set of kind of codes of conduct. How are we going to interact? How are we going to treat each other? How are we going to interact with each other? And probably not, you know, hard and fast treaties, which people go to Vienna and spend five years hammering out and then finally sign it, and that's the treaty. It's more a set of understandings and then a continuous process of adapting and and, and even within the competition that they'll be having, they're still adapting on certain key basic points to avoid it getting out of hand. Um, and I think that's what we have to move towards, and that's what we have to find. I think people haven't wrapped their heads around that yet. They don't quite know how to get there. So the traditional mold of arms control and disarmament negotiations will not work today. You need to address new challenges. The conversation has to be very different. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's still some residual issues, I mean, nuclear weapons. I mean, the Russians and the Americans need, they're walking, the Americans are walking away now from nuclear arms control, it seems. They need to get back to that. I mean, so legacies need to be 
taken care of and, and calmed down. And the Chinese need to be brought into that conversation before their arsenals grow. And so there's, there's, there are legacy issues that require the old approaches or modified in some way. But there are all these new issues that require fundamentally new approaches. You know, I've noticed that in your work, you haven't really touched upon China, um, um, in, in, in your, either in your track two work or in your academic work. How is China's rise perceived in the West as, as a major threat or as an opportunity, for instance, in, within, within, within NATO or um, even in Canada for that matter? How is China perceived, China's rise is perceived? It's, um, it's both, and people don't quite know what to make of it or how to analyze it or how to um, uh, come to grips with it. It is going to be a different sort of a power in many ways, and in some ways it'll be the same. The Chinese, in some ways, have a very old sense of nationalism, a 19th sense of what it means to be nationalist. So um, in some ways it's a throwback, in other ways it's new. I I'm not sure I buy this stuff about, you know, my goodness, they're a non-Caucasian power, what should we do, what should we do? I, mean, I, I find that a bit off-putting, but I think, you know, it's a matter of, of, of determining interests on both sides and recognizing that the, the era of sort of Western dominance is over, which doesn't mean to say the West in general, the United States isn't going to be a major power in the world. I believe it will be for centuries to come, but it's not the only one. And it doesn't get to unilaterally set the parameters of the discussion. There are other factors that need to be borne in mind. But I think on the Chinese side, there's a need to, to recognize that the sort of expansionist conception of nationalism which they take, either economic or otherwise, which they take into some of these discussions, um, is, is outdated and old-fashioned and needs to be overcome. But you're not going to get there without a dialogue. Within the NATO or even in the United States for that matter, which country is seen as the biggest threat, Russia or China? Probably in the longer term, China. In the more immediate term, and particularly for the European NATO partners, of course, Russia. Um, I think, they're, they're, but they're seen as different kinds of threats. Russia is seen as a case of a, um, a declining power which doesn't like it and is aggressive. And is playing, I mean, Putin is playing a weak hand very skillfully. If you look at the, the fundamentals of Russia, you know, life expectancy is declining. The economy is going in the toilet. I mean, it's a, it's a country that in many ways is not, doesn't deserve the status it has. But Putin, by being aggressive, by bending the rules, by uh, uh, destabilizing his neighbors, has, has managed to parlay that into a position of some influence and, and is worrying the European countries around him. I think that as long as the NATO countries stick together and stand up to it, it will ultimately not prevail. Um, but China is much more sort of reshaping the world, kind of a, an emerging trend that could reshape things fundamentally. That doesn't necessarily have to be a threat, but it's much more significant in the longer term. But I guess China is seen more as an opportunity than, say, Russia, because there's very little opportunity vis-a-vis -vis Russia, but there's a lot of opportunity, economic and otherwise, um, uh, commercial opportunities with, 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 with the Chinese, even though they are a, they are a challenge in many ways, um, at the normative level, for example. Um, I remember somebody, um, you know, asking me, can you imagine a, um, a world, world order 
which is normally normatively led by the Chinese system. How would that look like? Uh, so I think I think there are there are we're, we're comparing the the uh, Russians and the Chinese. The perception I think is um, th they look at Russia more as a challenge and look at China more as a challenge and an opportunity because there's nothing that Russia can offer to the world at this point of time. Perhaps that's fair enough. I mean, I think if Russia could get its act together, there's a lot it could, but at the present time, that's not likely. So I think you've made, that's a fair point. But my final question, you worked a lot on India-Pakistan relations uh, in, your, in your track to work. How do you characterize this rivalry? A lot of people have, people have described uh, the India-Pakistan rivalry in, in very many ways, including enduring rivalry, shooting for a century, etc. Et how, how do you describe this? <laughs> uh, there are many different factors. I understand you're going to be very diplomatic. I'm going to be quite diplomatic here. Yes, I apologize in advance. Um, I think... What has, what concerns me as I look at the last few years and where it seems to be going is that my, my perception as an outsider is that in many ways for the first few decades it was a debate over land. And it was, and therefore if you're fighting over land you can make compromises if you can get there, you know. It seems to be becoming more and more a fight over identity. The two sides, or at least powerful interests on the two sides, are defining the rivalry in terms of, of you know, our identity is defined by our opposition to them. And, and, you know, we are not what they are, therefore that's our identity. And it's rising on both sides. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the dominant trend yet, but it's rising. And once you get into a squabble over identity, and once you take the piece of land that you're arguing over and turn it into part of your national identity. It's who you are. How can you possibly compromise? How can you um, strike a bargain? How can you split the difference? Because you can't split the difference on your identity. And so it, it, it's a worry in that sense. Um, uh, I think as I look ahead, I, I, that's, that's what concerns me most. And I think it's, it's necessary to try to get back to the issue of looking at the difference as a difference over a piece of land that can be discussed and debated rather than a difference of identity. Peter, wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.